Hey guys, Riley here. Episode 17 is upon us, and holy smokes, it is a doozy. It is me, it's me sitting down, talking to Steve Hackett of Genesis, Steve Hackett of Squacket, Steve Hackett of 24 solo albums, Steve Hackett of just the man of my dreams, when my dreams involve a guy who's really, really, really great at playing guitar. It's, um... It's something that if you had asked us when we were starting this out four months ago, you know, do you think in a million, million years you'll ever ask, uh, you'll ever interview somebody from Genesis, we would say no, that's why we're going to ask the Peter Gabriel Phil Collins question at the end of these shows, Um, because, I mean, that, and we're also kind of shitheads, but (laughs) uh, we're here, we're doing it. I've left the audio of this interview largely untouched. Normally, I go through afterwards and sort of tighten it up for time and uh, for content, uh, because no one really likes long, awkward pauses or me going, uh, for four and a half minutes, which was the total amount of time I took out of the Merganser episode, our very first one. A little nervous on that one. And I'm a little nervous on this one, and you can definitely tell, but uh, Steve Hackett doesn't seem to mind or care one or the other, um, and we talk. We go in depth about talking about his latest album, which is called Wolflight, and um, which pairs sort of his very distinctive, very. I, I I was searching for it in the episode, but I was just so nervous that almost all words words escaped me, except for nervous laughter. And um, well, if that was about it, you're about to hear it. Um, but a. The, the word I was looking for is is almost a cinematic quality to the way that he plays guitar, and he pairs that in this album with with uh, orchestration, but not in the way that you typically fear when you hear that a rock musician is teamed up with an orchestra, which is just sort of the orchestra is there to fill out chords. In this album, uh, Steve Hackett has sort of made really interesting arrangement choices, and he takes a lot of those cues from sort of different places that he travels in the world. I'm not sure if we get into that aspect of it too much in this interview, but um, you can tell, like, he travels a lot, and it, while he's there, he he takes cues from different musicians there, and he incorporates it all through a very specific sort of lens that he writes music through, and uh, I think at one point we try to define what uh, the Steve Hackett sound is, and uh, I think it it speaks sort of to his artistry that even he kind of, even at this point in his career, he still says there is no Steve Hackett sound because he's always searching for new sounds, and I think that's... Uh, that's that, that's that's really cool to me. It's it's it, 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 I think it really speaks to him as an artist because at this point in his career, he is so established. He could just sort of get by by rehashing the same things over and over and over again. But clearly, on Wolflight, he doesn't do that. He's he's still searching for new sounds, new ways to play guitar. I get into that a lot with him and just the way he sort of produces. It's uh, it's it was really interesting to me. I hope you guys find it as intriguing. And, you know, if you do, maybe uh, maybe rate us on iTunes or throw us a subscribe or uh, share it with someone who would want to hear, you know, a 60-minute interview, which was actually an hour and 13 seconds, I know, because all over Skype, uh, with a, a living guitar legend. Uh, how, often, how often do you get to hear that? Um, well, I guess pretty often if you subscribe to one of those god-awful guitar magazines. But uh, those people are not journalists, neither are we. <laughs> But uh, we ask better questions, and this is a podcast that you can listen to on your guitar instead of reading while you poop. And that is not the best way to finish out this intro, but we'll see how it sounds, and maybe I'll re-edit it. If not, episode 17, holy smokes, guys, Steve Hackett. I, 
I don't even know what to say. Enjoy it. So, welcome to Stonehall Sessions. It's quite an honor to have you on. Um, and I guess to start this off, I really want to dig into Wolflight. And um, I think one of the things I find so interesting is that uh, talking to a lot of musicians on here, uh, they talk about the limitations they face while recording an album and how that sort of shapes the overall sound of it. Yeah. And you, I would say, a lot of the guys we talk to are sort of young upstarts, and you, you know, 24 solo albums on, you're sort of, you're not a young upstart anymore, and I feel like you probably, there aren't any more hardware limitations for you. What sort of limitations do you put on yourself when shaping something like Wolflight? Well, I think making an album and trying to surprise yourself is a bit like shadow boxing. You know, you know where it's come from, so... Um, if you subscribe to the notion that, that magic is always something that someone else does, 
you really have to dig deep or try and trick yourself into areas that you wouldn't normally come up with. So um, uh, whenever I sit down and logically try and do something, I, I'm always disappointed uh, with it when I try and write like that. It just doesn't work for me. So um, it's at the moment, precisely the moment that I, I give up on the melody, that I actually start to hear it doing <laughs> what it ought to do. Uh, so um, you might say that uh, the subconscious takes over, or perhaps I'm acting as a channel um, for something for something else to to kick in. But um, I'm I'm always looking for the superior songwriter, and uh, I don't always find it from myself. Believe me, it doesn't come on <laughs> like a tap. It's a it's a frustrating process. It would be lovely if one could just you know do it like a like a lucid dream every time, but um, it doesn't fall into into um, uh, acceptable or, or rather desirable chronology. It just um, comes along at the most awkward of times very often <laughs> when you're late for a plane or um, you've got to be somewhere or driving. Marvellous melody comes at the head, but very difficult to write it down. So um, it's an elusive process. It's like trying to photograph fairy wings on a, on a blustery day. It's very, very tr tricky to, to actually catch that elusive thing. What is that thing called magic? Yeah. And is that something that it took you a while to learn, or was that something that you've sort of, you knew, you've known for a while? Well, um, I used to try and write things in a, in a more logical kind of way, and um, I used to think, uh, well, you know, I've worked on this for a while now, this, this is the melody, this is how it is, whereas I've realized that all really great writing um, is actually a passive process, whereby you wait to hear back from that remote region, the vault that's buried away somewhere with the door slammed shut and just now and again the, the door is left ajar and you catch a glimpse <laughs> of the gold that's hidden away in the dark recesses of that vault. So, um, as I say, it's, it's an elusive thing and I think you have, to, you have to trick yourself. I remember reading this uh, with Henry Miller talking about the act of writing and he was saying... Um, you know, whenever he was away from the typewriter or the pen, he'd be out walking, and then it would really start to flow. And then each time he was back in front of the medium, um, he climbed up again. <laughs> and uh, I know exactly what he's talking about with that. I think songwriting is like that. It's 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 a state of mind. It might take a cup of tea or something stronger, but. Um, uh, in the main, I, th I think you can get there uh, by natural means. Um, uh, a glass of sherry with the vicar, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> once every leap year. Um, yeah, um, to be abstemious, it doesn't always help with, 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 uh, with writing, but um, um, exercise is good. Mm. Yeah, but that, that gets you high in another way. Um, it's good to be doing something else. I think once you start doing something else, then then the writing can kick in. You've got to sort of do something like a mantra to tie up the conscious brain. You've got to sort of, you know, tie up that barge, that sluggish thing called the conscious, the conscious brain. Yeah. I think they call those uh, shower thoughts these days, things that once you start concentrating... Often, often in the shower, yes. <laughs> Showers are very good for it, yes. No one's invented the, um, the shower-proof pen, as far as I know, but... Um, you think that's what would have thought of everything? Another way of bringing it up. 
Um, now, one thing I was, I'm super interested in is you've recorded yep. albums through the 70s, you suffered through the harshness of early digital 80s effects, and you sort of yep. persevered through the age of digital audio workstations. Uh, yep. And yet, throughout all that, you still have an unmistakable way of sort of playing guitar and arranging parts. Uh, how have changes to technology affected the way that you record? Um, well, things are more flexible now. Um, but because you have so many more choices, um, it's often harder to make them. Um, obviously, at one time, uh, and this might sound anachronistic for, for a younger audience, but um, at one time, if you wanted to make the sound of a, of a pipe organ or a, or a Mellotron or a, um, a Fender Rhodes, and we're talking about you know classic keyboard sounds, mm-hmm. um, never mind guitars. You um, you either had to get one in or or, or go to one. Um, so I remember recording in in the record plant in in Los Angeles in in the late seventies, specifically to Gods. They had a resident pipe organ and it sounded wonderful. And um, now, of course. Um, if you can't access the real thing like that, you know, there's a patch coming to your studio um, very near you. And, of course, studios themselves are the size of computer screens, so when we're, we're not subject to the, the, the tyranny of, of space or, or, or volume anymore to make, to make these sounds. Um, you have masses of choices at your fingertips. But um, at one time, uh, I think the art of arranging was very much... Um, to decide what kind of instrument you were going to use, and and, um, and it probably wouldn't vary from it uh, that much. So it's, it's not that removed from the idea of the score sheet. Uh, and, you know, the woodwinds do this, the brass do, does this, and the strings are going to do this, blah, 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 blah. And then you've got your arrangement. Um, um, you know, it, it, it's old school thinking, and there's nothing nothing wrong with it. Wonderful music has been, been written like that. But, you know, these days... Um, uh, I think I, perhaps the most daunting thing is stepping through patches, um, all of which, um, or very few of which, rather, um, sound good and, and sound <laughs> arresting. Um, lots of sounds, none of which you actually want to use. And um, as, as soon as someone starts to do that, I, I immediately have to leave the room. <laughs> I can't. I can't handle it. it goes bing, bong, 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 and. Um, it saps the energy uh, tremendously. Um, but every now and again, of course, there is a really great sound that someone will find. And um, uh, so, you know, it's, it's all part of it, discovering those those colors. So I, I guess you wouldn't be... Like the other day, I was helping to produce a band and one of the guitars couldn't nail a take. So they did DI in, recorded at 50 BPM, and then sped it up to 130 and just said, we'll fix it in post. You're not a big fan of that, eh? Well, actually, I have um, uh, used very speeds and, and it's modern equivalent. Um, certainly, uh, uh, that can work. Um, it's... Uh, it served the Beatles very well and George Martin, um, and uh, we used it with Genesis uh, quite often. Um, and it's another way of going, isn't it? It's another look at a familiar instrument, and sometimes it's a case of, of the reverb that you're, you're using, or whether you're using formant shifting, or um, however you're, you're treating something as apparently basic as a human voice, but it can sound 
infinitely different that that same voice depending on 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 the way it's it's treated so you don't really know what a voice sounds like until you start uh mixing it with modern paints now do you still like to experiment with uh modern effects and trying to find new guitar tones is that still something that uh interests you um, well, yes, it does. Yeah, I I I, uh, I work on that all the time. Um, but I still think the most interesting instrument of a lot is the brain, really. Um, you know, the brain and the imagination. I think that's where it really starts. Um, I don't think that's been replaced quite <laughs> yet. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> we'll have to wait for the next iPhone. Well, indeed, yeah, you know, uh, uh, you know, technology is a fad, uh, but so often uh, musicians come back to classic sounds, um, things that are tried and tested, um, and uh, so part of what you do is as a historian uh, doing that, but or an archaeologist, but on the other hand, um, you've got to boldly go where no sound has been heard before. Now, that's kind of interesting, because I would say... Uh you more than any other member of Genesis is sort of you're the one who carries the torch for all of us who like sort of the more elaborate and nuanced area uh, of you and Gabriel in it. Um, and I'm just wondering when you sit down to start writing an album like uh, Wolf Light, how do you balance your own like your fans' expectations with sort of your desire to grow artistically? Do you is there ever pressure to make sure that there's something in there for all the prog heads and then something for you? Well, I think you know that is that is something that that, that every everyone is is faced with. You know, as soon as there's any kind of expectation, um, there's the desire to to want to completely re reinvent yourself. I think you know, like a character actor. Um, all I can say is, as as a huge fan of of the, the Beatles psychedelic um, era. Um, there were several times when I wondered who I was listening to, only to find out later that it was the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, now these days, that's harder to do because of the the the, the information um, networks and the whole kind of communication revolution means that um, the instant something's there, you know you know what it is. There's technology in place that will literally listen to a melody and tell you what what it is. Um, but um, artists' ability to be able to reinvent themselves, but take the audience that they had on further, I think, is 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 the challenge for all of us. So um, uh, that might mean that you need to be brave enough um, to wander into areas of pastiche and allow yourself to do um, elaborate jokes, if only to <laughs> narrow it down to the one joke that works. But um, let's not forget that. Um, a large amount of Sergeant Pepper was was a huge elaborate joke, and um, uh, several other things they they did as well. Magical Mystery Tour and um, the kind of gobbledygook songs, which <laughs> worked so well, largely I think because of the the arrangements and the technology that was being harnessed at the time. And of course, they had tremendous manpower to be able to harness as well. So um, yeah, if they wanted anyone from anywhere in the world they came and worked with them that's that's uh, uh, that's how it was so the beginning of world music and and the challenge for for the rest of us to um to produce something that universal um 
and of course, uh, you know, being a certain age at that time, um, you know, I was having a conversation today um, with um, my sister-in-law's husband, who was saying he he didn't actually like anything that the Beatles did at all. He 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 didn't enjoy that, and but he enjoyed Genesis uh, for some reason. That was one of his his favourites, and. Um, for me, of course, I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, there's a logical progression from whatever was going on in the, the mid-60s to um, what was going on in perhaps the mid-70s. Um, I can see the thread, but for someone else encountering it for the first time, um, it's often a case of you thinking, ah, my hero invented music. <laughs> but of course, it's not like that. You know, we, we, we inherit whatever whatever's gone on before uh, the candles passed on and um if you're lucky you know you can't see the tape you can't see the joins yeah i was uh it's funny you bring up the beatles i was reading something the other day and i guess hey jude was supposed to be an elaborate prank on everybody who said you know oh you should make songs that are just this sweet all the time and so they made a song that was just sort of it came home the entire time and people loved it but didn't really get the joke that they were trying to make and now it's you right. know a classic <laughs> Well, I know that there is that, and and of course it's a very simple. And um, just recently, I've been finding myself um, with uh, you know more time on my hands, uh, spending time with family at the moment, a difficult time that you, that you know about um, because of the passing of my mother-in-law. But what that's meant is is um, I often find myself with a guitar in hand, you know, writing a, a, a sweet, simple tune that is nothing like the progressive stuff that um, you might be more familiar with uh, from me. Um, I don't always feel the need to do something clever. Um, in fact, I think equation-driven stuff um, can often be robbed of feeling. Uh, too much stuff that's... Too much punctuation and not enough statement, not enough heart in, in songs. Uh, it wears me down. I actually quite like a simple folk tune from time to time or... Um, and and um, in the early days when I started listening to um, um, American artists, I was very taken with them. You know, round about the time of you know the late 1950s when I first started buying records, uh, and the early 60s, and, um, and many balladeers who um, came from um, the other side of the pond. And and uh, I even now I I, I marvel at at the beauty and the simplicity of that, you know, heartfelt songs that could be folk songs um, that come under the heading of mere pop and what masterpieces they are. Um, little bits of, you know, heartfelt honesty. So I, I, I don't dismiss any of it. I don't think, oh, you know, this is teenage angst and, <laughs> and it doesn't make sense, all this sort of puppy love type stuff. You know, it's, it's heartfelt and it's true and it's perennial and therefore, well, it's 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 eternal. I will always love the work of um, several acts I, I could mention: um, uh, the Everly Brothers, of course, um, uh, Roy Orbison. Mm-hmm. And there's the link there. But also, I think often Brian Hyland gets overlooked. You know, the sweetness of the songs. I think was so. Uh, was so lovely and, and, and so beautiful, and of course it's mixed with memories uh, for me mm-hmm. of you know early years and um, 
uh, I really enjoy that, and and um, it's 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 interesting. You know, there there are many people who I think you know deserve a second look. Um, you know, many progressive bands get um, mentioned, but people hardly ever mention Progo Harum, and yet Progo Harum was a huge influence on so many many acts. Um, and, and 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 so it goes. Yeah. Um, let's. Uh, do you mind if we dive right into Wolflight for a second? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I noticed that a lot of these songs are uh, co-written with uh, your wife Jo. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And I was wondering, is there <laughs> is there a difference between Steve Hackett, loving husband, and Steve hacking Steve Hackett, living guitar legend? Like, is there an adjustment when you guys go in the studio, or what is the relationship writing relationship like between you guys? Well, um, the writing relationship is one where um, I don't always know what what Joe will like. I I think that she will like certain things, um, but um, she'll often sing me a, a variation on a melody, or or tell me she thinks something isn't worth repeating. Um, I think that she can be very uh, positively critical of, um, of of musicians and their approach. Um, uh, she says, you know, musicians love the groove, and um, but that doesn't always take an audience uh, with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of the rhythm section that would just love to just chug away on on a riff and and pare it down and and do slight sort of funk variations to it but um, I think the art art of writing is about more than that and as I say variation normally is part of it on the other hand funnily enough um, I'll be writing a song today that that doesn't vary at all but very very heartfelt and it keeps um, uh, repeating the same line over and over again because I'm after a certain kind of vocal tone so there I contradicted myself immediately <laughs> um, with this but then I did want to do a song that was very written very quickly and um, uh, you know create that idea of something that was incredibly heartfelt but you know very much in, in, in the moment and not really not really thought about on the other hand I think things other than love songs um, and things that, that are stories um, benefit greatly from going back to the to the drawing board and trying to think trying to think like a band and trying to think like a producer um, and an orchestrator all in one and think well you know we're going to hand on the baton from from one team to another or one brain to another and swap genres um, what do we do to keep the drama happy what, what do we do to please <laughs> the guitarist what, what is it the singer wants to um, do and of course the writer is all of those things um um, ideally, it's like Shakespeare. Shakespeare is all his villains and heroes in one, isn't he? You know, mm-hmm. that's the thing. He's he's uh, he's done everything. He's been everybody. He's written everyone's part. But the playwright does that. Uh, the songwriter, you know, needs to be challenged in the same sort of way. Um, uh, it's important to be able to think out of character. It's very tempting to want to do a typical Steve Hackett album. Believe me. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that might be <laughs> uh, I think that's uh, that's great it kind of uh, I think one of the things that really struck out or stuck out for me um, 
uh, with Wolf Light is when I heard that it was uh, you were working like it, it was more orchestral. At first, I was like, "Oh no!" Because my worst fear is uh, when sort of bands bring in an orchestra just to sort of fill out the chords, and they it's yeah. just like sort of like a wall of sound. But you, it's yeah. the arrangements on Wolf Light are exciting and they're dynamic and. I, I kept, especially on the the wheels turning. I kept going. Yeah. Did they just? Did they? Did they just do that? Yeah. Oh. And then I'd rewind it. I go through it again. Um, and, yeah. So like, how how does how does arranging like do you do that all on guitar? How how, how long did how that does take? That work? Yeah. Well, I think no, I didn't do it all on guitar. Uh, uh, as I say, I think I think um, you know my best instrument is really the brain. So. Um, uh, I've got my receivers up. I I, I thought um, here, here's a moment. Um, you know something like a, a Berlin beer keller music, uh, music for grotesques uh, to start it off, which becomes um, a kind of a, a, a rider, a very quick ride around an old-fashioned steam fair, uh, and then we get into something that's more uh, driving strings. Um, um, but uh, some of the influences a line that might have been sung by Roy, Roy Orbison again something more romantic but keeping up the rhythm um, and being prepared to do something that simple and then uh, once that's been established and you've got a certain sweetness um to suddenly change direction and find yourself in the middle of a, well, in the middle of a song, it sounds a bit like the beginning of a of a of a, of a Tchaikovsky ballet. <laughs> um, the idea of what you know strings and brass can do together, and um, the way Tchaikovsky uses um, rhythm instruments, percussion instruments. So, a roll on the timpani, um, the um, right at the top. Um, of it, you know, with the soaring strings, we've got um, uh, a triangle making making a din, um, sounding like an alarm bell. So you've got from bottom to top with with um, with orchestral percussion, um, and um, the strings are doing their thing in the middle. And I didn't know whether that was going to work or not, but actually, it's one of my proud moments because. I think it's gone delightfully old-fashioned. Like, you weren't expecting that at that moment, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then we're, into a, then we're into a shuffle. We're into a jig. Um, and, um, yeah, and then, and then the idea of pulling it back, you know, from, from um, you know, from 6-8, how do we get back to 4-4? Four, four? And, um, um, and I thought it was again via via Tchaikovsky. So, um, and then we've got a moment of oohs and ahs that wouldn't be out of place on a Beach Boys record, which leads us back into into um, by nefarious means eventually back into a succession of choruses, and it, and it, and 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 it plays out. So, um, those are all the influences I can think of <laughs> off my head. You know, for other people, they might say, "Oh, the orchestral is a bit like the Dam Busters um, theme." And um, indeed, lyrically, I was thinking of you know rockets going up and things that you're flying. But then it's 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 children at the fair rather than you know the soaring bombers of of of, of the Dam Busters. Um, 
So, um, I, I'm, I'm quite open about my, my influences. Hopefully, <laughs> it all comes out a bit like me, but um, <laughs> um, I would probably be very happy if I never wrote another note of original music in my life, because I, I've gotten to the point where I realised there's no such thing as originality, so I'm perhaps as cynical as John Lennon uh, became <laughs> when he said it's the same old notes. Um, uh, yes, certainly that, but they have the ability to be able to move me to tears, those same old notes, so I'm, I'm still dealing with, you know, the absolutes of, of sound. Yeah, I mean, we've all got the same 12 notes. It's just what you do with them. It's just what you do with them and and, and the quarter tones and the relevance of that. I'm, 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 aware, of, of, um, I'm aware of that. Um, uh, years ago, when I was sick as, as a child, um, um, I used to have this thing that, that I thought for years I, I'd been hallucinating this because I had a high temperature and I was ill um, and um, uh, actually I was seeing sound waves coming towards me I realized what they were and I could hear the, and I could hear their um, electrostatic charge as well um, so I think that actually was real I was in an altered state and um, um, I could see them coming towards me, but I was terrified of them. I thought they were going to kill me if they ever reached me. Oh, my goodness. Um, it's, a, it's a strange thing, isn't it? I was terrified of them. My mother was there, and I was trying to, you know, describe to her this, and I was gripping her hand in terror, and, and she was looking down on me, and I realized that, you know, this this, this thing wasn't go, this, this thing wasn't go away, and it, and it scared the life out of me. Um, but... Um, I I was already experiencing music as as a child. I was trying to make music ever since I was a two year old. Um, uh, so music music was an important was an important thing for me. Um, it always moved me, whether it was the music of Mario Lanza or um, a little bit later Elvis. Um, and, and guitar music, of course, which was uh, hugely influential. But then I had no idea that guitar music was going to lead me into into Bach, and <laughs> um, uh, so that was another kind of guitar music. And I realized the guitar itself had this other facility that, that I couldn't possibly get anywhere near. Um, I was still, you know, a plectrum player when I started out, and. Um, Reluctantly, over the years, I yielded to the idea of, of using the nails and <laughs> accessing more parts um, in one go. So, um, right up to the present, present day, I'm, I'm, I'm um, messing around with flamenco moves and um, rhythms and tunings, and um, uh, so using it in a very percussive uh, uh, way. Mm -hmm. It's an exciting kind of music. And I think uh, that's one of the great things uh, about listening to uh, Wolflight is you can hear so many different influences, and they're all sort of uh, you frame them through your your own playing. But like uh, when you're writing, uh, especially these songs that are you know seven, eight, nine minutes long, are you yep. uh, are you writing uh, sort of 
a whole bunch of different pieces and then fitting them together afterwards, or is it... Uh, oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, um, again, I have to quote, quote John Lennon here. Perhaps I shouldn't quote him <laughs> so much. But um, I was very heartened to read in a biography written by um, Hunter Davis. Um, he was being asked, you know, how he wrote tunes. He said, well, you get ideas and you join a month later. Oh, yeah. And I uh, realized, having read that in fairly recent years, that I, I imagined that the Beatles were just able to write everything chronologically. Uh, you know, all the songs came along fully finished, and you realize it doesn't work like that for anybody. Um, everyone has bits, and um, uh, you might have a thousand bits in, in your brain or written down somewhere or recorded, and, you know, bit number 192 might fit with piece number 1003 <laughs> they might bear some relevance you know all sorts of potential choruses and potential bits and riffs and uh, it's, a, it's a minefield of frustration until you pare it down and you realize yes I'm going to commit and this is going to go with this bit and this is going to go with this bit and still it's not going to sell in the same quantities that the Beatles did but you know that isn't the point mm -hmm. the fact is um, uh, communicating fully to one person, the audience that you can that you can access is 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 what it's all about. If you go about things from the point of view of I want to sell to as many people as possible, then you end up playing so many games and jumping through so many other people's hoops. You know, you might as well just get it all fixed, get the nose fixed, get the teeth fixed. <laughs> Um, take dancing lessons, um, fake tan, you know, where does it stop? And I think, um, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be the all singing, all dancing, uh, the all rounder. I'd, I'd rather say, yes, I'm an all rounder in terms of I have an appreciation of every single instrument. I realize that all the things that I may have dismissed at one time, you know, that was purely um, pure arrogance on, on, on my part or lack of imagination in fact um, it's all got a relevant uh, thing you know even the lowly triangle as I said <laughs> made a difference to that moment um, on that song the wheels turning um, if that hadn't been there then that, that moment wouldn't have had the sparkle and the sheer kind of the brilliance of the fireworks that accompany Tchaikovsky as, as we know it. Not the canons. I, I <laughs> resisted that so far, but I'm sure they had their place too. Um, that's... Uh that's really interesting uh, to hear about uh, sort of the way that you write because I think like a really good example for that uh, two pieces that sort of because uh, Wolf Light uh, sort of it all blends into each other but I thought one way that uh, really stuck out for me was uh, the transition between Earthshine and then Loving Sea right which immediately reminded me of uh, the sort of A-B parts on Blood on the Rooftops uh, from way way back but um and then Loving Sea comes in, and it kind of reminds me of like one of those, you know, those breakdowns at the end of a, or sometimes in the middle of a yes song, where it's just like they've been hammering you and hammering you and hammering you, and then here finally there's that payoff, and um, in a, in a really uh, charming way. And uh, how did how did those how did those two songs come about, and uh, well, how did you choose to connect them? Um, 
Well, nylon guitar, for a start, um, uh, you've got that, and, 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 you know, one one of the brightest moments on on that, um, where I'm doing a a kind of um, a sound right at the end, um, a a scroll, basically, Um, it's probably the brightest sound that I could make on the nylon, but then you get uh, four acoustic guitars, kicking in and the track that's incoming is mixed is very very brightly and very very compressed and um uh and because there's a paucity of uh arrangement on that and very few things playing um apart from the four guitars and a, a couple of shakers um um you've got that you've got a, a clavichord but then that leaves a lot of room for uh, the vocal harmonies that, 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 that arrive. So uh, it's essentially a three-part harmony, and uh, two of those parts are stacked up um, uh, with, with octaves. So you've got a five-part harmony. Um, and it's a very simple tune. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple love song. Um, and it flies in the face of anything remotely proggy. <laughs> um, the idea was to write the kind of song that could have been written in one go, and, and it probably was. Um, the idea of uh, you know, being on holiday, being, as in the case of that song, um, in Mexico, uh, the Yucatan, I'm trying to remember if it was Yucatan, Cozumel, uh, but it was, there was, um, it was really very, very beautiful, a mangroves, a lagoon, uh, nature, uh, giant um, turtles, um, dolphin, um, as I say, mangroves with exotic birds on them, and um, everything turned up to order, and um, uh, it was just, gorgeous to be in the midst of you know, a perfect day, perfect sunshine. Um, I think it was a Boston Whaler boat. It's very simple. In other words, it's like a rowboat with an outboard engine on it, mm-hmm. which I've piloted myself uh, many times. Someone else was doing it on the day, and I thought, oh, yeah, this is what holidays are all about. You get in that boat, and you start to smile. It's the roller coaster <laughs> effect, you know. Um, it brings that smile, and... Um, I thought, you know, if I was describing this in song, it would go a bit like this. <laughs> and the melody popped into my head, and and um, and then Joe and I wrote the lyrics very, very quickly together, and uh, I hardly changed the thing. It was, again, a bit like one of those snapshot songs, if there's such a thing. Um, nothing too fussy. I thought, all it needs is this, and it needs a chorus, and it could be this. And... Um, uh, and then we need a little bit of a middle eight. Um, uh, and I didn't bother to take it down to one voice at any one point. I thought, um, no, I, I, I don't need to worry. You know, some songs can just be in harmony all the way. Um, many people would argue with me and say, no, you know, you've got to have a solo voice here. You've got to, <laughs> to have the contrast between the two. And of course, yes, ideally, but on the other hand, you know, um, if you want to keep it sunny, then you keep it um, you, you keep it 
harmonized all the way. So very, very bright. I was singing as high as I could. Um, and, um, you know, some of those parts are in falsetto. Some of them are full voice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed doing that. Uh, for some reason, I've got this thing with my voice where it's not the same from bottom to top. You can't tell it's the same singer, I don't think. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, um, and low down, I sound a bit like a, a country singer. Um, and then in the middle, I'm something else. And then up the top, I'm, I'm something else. I, it's, it's annoying singing <laughs> uh, 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 solo things because I start sounding like uh, different people as I go up. And so uh, I, I'm letting that vulnerability be my strength this time. You know, I'm not going to be that operatic singer who, you know, does what Pavarotti does. It's not going to be like that. It's not going to be that smooth ride, but it will have different characterizations. So um, I I work within my own limitations. I try and turn my limitations into in, in, into a strength. Um, uh, I think that if you don't have marvelous singing technique, you can develop character um, as an adjunct and as a kind of... Um, well, a piece of Band-Aid over, over it all, I think. <laughs> Sticky tape over everything. Well, yeah, I think some of uh, our most well-known and famous singers are ones who don't have perfect pitch or perfect voices, but they, they use That's their right. voice, you know, as, you know, it's that same thing with limitation, where it was a limitation that they worked around, they, they, they used it to make it better. That's it, yeah. Um, um, so, if one voice doesn't sound right to you, then um, try another, double-track it, put a harmony on get in other singers, um, <laughs> sing softer, sing harder, um, try more vibrato, um, uh, many things that, um, you can do with, with, um, with one voice. Um, and we all have a number of voices. People say, oh, I can't sing. Well, you say, well, I would think the first lesson would be can you whisper as quietly as possible to me? Now, can you shout as loud as possible? <laughs> now, that doesn't sound like the same thing. So you do have a voice and you've got two sides to it, at least. And, and singing is actually all about confidence. Um, and then you develop various techniques. Um, it's not as reliable as, as a guitar, which I can tune and... Uh, you know, 99% of the time, I can get a decent vibrato out of it. But, you know, with, with singing, it, all this kind of stuff comes and goes. It seems to have a mind of its own. Uh, but I work within that. Mm-hmm. But the short answer would be, yes, work within your own limitations. <laughs> um, and another thing i got to ask is... Uh, it- you were you acted as co-producer on this album. You and uh, King. Uh, yeah, I think I think we've ceased to start crediting uh, a production um, anymore to each other. We we just do it. You know, okay. Roger and I do that. It's 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 kind of an obsolete function for us. Mm-hmm. Um, much as I would love to work with one of the world's greatest producers, and it and it came close. I nearly worked with with George Martin. Um, Oh, and wow. but but when I asked him, he was too busy. And then when he asked me, um, I, I was slow on the uptake, and I was doing something else, and and so I never got to work with arguably the world's greatest producer. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a bit of a shame. But hey, you know, <laughs> um, in the afterlife, I'll um, 
approach him again. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> one of the things I, I was going to... <laughs> Um, not a lot of people know, or not many people may know this, but uh, "Love Song to a Vampire" is the last thing that Chris Squire recorded before he passed. Yeah. And um, as a producer on that album, uh, what was it like to give notes to Chris Squire about how to play bass? Uh, well, <laughs> actually, he found um, his own notes on on a large part of it. But I had a rising line, a potentially a rising line for it, and um, I didn't know that he would be available to do that because um, we were messing around with bass samples and we just couldn't get it out of... It, it was one of those things that wouldn't go to bed. We tried bass pedals, we tried shoving clavinets through distortion, <laughs> we tried we, you know, everything, everything imaginable. Samples of this, samples of that. And then Chris phoned up and said, oh, I'm in town for a couple of days. Have you got anything I could work on? <laughs> Literally, it was this simple. I said, well, it just so happens I've got a track. And I said, have you got a, a bass with you? And he said, no, all my stuff's out on tour. Have you got anything I can use? So my Fender Precision, which hadn't really come out of the case for about 20 years, got rebuilt overnight to for him to use the next day um, we put on I think we put on strings of his choice and um, load the action uh, basically it went to hospital and had an op operation done on it and it came out brand new the next day <laughs> and we plugged into a um, let me see I think it was a, a PV Classic 50 via um I think it's a Palmer speaker simulator. And although we were recording it at low level, it immediately sounded like him. Yeah. Um, the Fender Precision has got active EQ, so it had that very bright sound that he possesses. And um can't remember if we used any distortion. Probably we did. And um, it sounded like him. <laughs> sounded like it was made for him. And... Um, and uh, I feel very fortunate that I got to work with Chris um, on several projects. Absolutely. And I, 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 I talk to Chris quite a lot still in spirit. And uh, often I'm working on something. I say to Chris, well, you know, what would you have done here? Would you approve this? Um, so... Um, it, it's it, it is interesting, you know. He he was iconic, and I think he was I think he was a teacher. Um, he obviously was a huge influence on Phil in the early days, mm -hmm. um, and um, when I worked with him, he hardly ever came up with a straight part. Uh, in fact, there was a track called "Divided Self" that he liked very much that I earmarked for. For a solo thing, and we stuck it on the Squacket album that we did together. Um, and in the middle, you know, I had this kind of guitar solo, which was you know, quite clean sounding for me. I, I was I wanted something that was, only had an edge of distortion just to warm it up a bit. And um, I thought he'll start rooting the chords, but no, he started playing his own melody line along, and 
he made it bounce along and and you know what I thought? I thought this is the difference between a bass playing genius and a guy that you get in, you know, who 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 plays the parts that you've written. Mm-hmm. No, he 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 didn't. He just immediately started coming up with this counter melody, <laughs> and I thought, well, this is you know, perhaps his 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 training or his early exposure to. Um, Choral music, you know, he was he was a choir boy, mm-hmm. um, and I think quite naturally he would have been dealing with harmony um, from the very early days, and um, you know these other parts that I can only I can only guess at, you know, that coming up with what we call counter melodies, and it's probably you know alto parts and descant and god knows what <laughs> but i had very little musical theory i i deliberately stayed away from musical theory because i didn't want to be told what what you couldn't do mm-hmm. i'm fascinated by harmony i absolutely love it but um i don't want to be stuck in anyone else's school uh, i don't i don't want to be graded by uh, any anyone else you know, and now I'm not saying that it's wrong because um, I've worked with you know a legion of keyboard players, all of whom have had the training and and what have you. Mm-hmm. And um, I've got immense respect for those who've learned it thoroughly and the hard way and done it properly. Um, but I've wanted to be able to fly in and out of um, different schools of approach. Um, uh, colliding schools of thought are what it's all about for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I was for this interview. I did a ton of research and I listened through most of your back catalogue. And just every time a song came on, it was just it was distinctly Hackett. Uh, <laughs> I think that speaks well, a lot funny to you. That, you see, I don't really know what is me. And someone was saying recently, "You've got a style." I don't know what that style is. It might it, it might just be the way that you process and arrange things because as soon as I there are, there are certain certain little things that'll uh, certain melodies and uh, like counter melodies or counterpoints that I just think that is you know that's something that you'd hear in uh, Firth of Fifth, which actually was playing at a coffee shop earlier today. I took that as a sign and uh, <coughs> Supper's Ready all the way through uh, to Wolflight. It, it just it's there's something about it that's uniquely you. Well, I can't claim credit uh, for all of it um, <laughs> uh, because, you know, uh, the Genesis guys all influenced each other uh, greatly. Uh, you know, whether we uh, admit it to each other or not, um, there, there was there was a style, certainly, um, that um, we all orientated towards and um, Yes, of course. You know, we 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 um, we didn't arrive in, in in splendid splendid isolation, but we found there was enough common ground to be able to, um, you know, find something interesting in in find something interesting in Vaughan Williams and find something interesting in in in, in Buddy Rich and mm-hmm. um, you know somewhere between the English hymnal 
come together with that probably comes out like Jimmy Webb, I suspect, <laughs> um, somewhere in, in, in the middle. Um, but um, uh, I won't listen exclusively to any one kind of music. And um, I won't allow um, anyone I work with these days, I won't allow anyone to, to rubbish uh, a genre um, just because they consider that it's um, got insufficient form or insufficient harmony. Um, and I, I don't, for instance, see um, you know, blues as, a, as an inferior form. It's, it's nonsense. It's like saying um, Indian music is no good because it doesn't have any chords. It just has... Um, it's just modal. Mm -hmm. um, that isn't the point. The point is what it can do that other things can't do. Um, and there's a, an honest emotion that can be shown uh, through that. And the fact that it allows so much room for uh, um, a great uh, improvisation is is, is 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 to its benefit, and not its not its detriment. Um, but I think, you know, progressive people often have this sort of snobby thing, um, you know, which dismisses um, these other things. I, and I know, I, mean, I, I, I hear people saying it all the time, I don't like jazz because, some will say, and then they'll go off into the usual arguments about <laughs> why jazz doesn't work for them, or why blues doesn't work uh, for them, and and why women don't like blues and, and uh, all this kind of stuff. But on the other hand, you know, blues is all about women. That's probably why why they... I, I know I'm generalizing here. Um, it's all about lost women, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And um, it all flies in the face of that. And uh, if it gives you strength, uh, you know, between the failed romances, then... Um, uh, it, it it heals, and it's it's a wonderful thing to um, uh, to draw strength from. Um, and I won't I won't dismiss orchestras. Many, many people say, "Oh, you know, I don't like orchestras. You know, that's too frumpy." And um, I think, well, you know, you haven't heard the right kind of orchestral stuff yet. And yeah. you know, just just you know, you, what you've got to, got to hear is 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 something that turns your your own prejudice on its head and um, you will hear wonderful things in all these uh, genres that you'll, you'll dismiss at some point when you're young and then you have to eat your hat <laughs> and, and, then, um, and then you might start to truly grow. I'll admit I was like that uh, when I first started getting into progressive rock and friends would show me other bands and I said, wait, if the guitarist doesn't have three necks on his guitar, I can't listen to it. It's just not worth my time. Uh, well, but exactly. <laughs> you know, and I understand that, you know, complexity for its own, own sake. Um, um, there are things that I've listened to that, that are like that and, uh, you know, one can marvel at that and marvel at complexity and precision and, and, and musicianship. Um, but um, I think if you listen to Bach, for instance, um, there's an assumption made that you've got to have brilliant technique in order to be able to play any of it, frankly. Mm -hmm. um, 
so you need to have a grounding in various things and at least an appreciation of all these things in order to be able to do it. And whether Bach was the first jazz musician or or whether it was merely Baroque or whether, in fact, he was a closet romantic, <laughs> um, I, I think there's a lot of... Um, you know, the seeds of, of what we think of as, as, as 19th century romantic writing, um, I find a lot of it there in, in Bach. And there isn't always the flexibility um, uh, with every piece in terms of time. I mean, it is almost a case of a metronome having been set and, and with very few variations. It, you know, the piece ends up the way the way it started, but then there's something like the Chacon, originally written for violin and um, then piano arrangements and guitar arrangement, one of which I I recorded myself a while back, and um, and uh, that's not limited to that. You know, it goes through various changes and um, um, it speeds up, it slows down, it goes. Rallentando, crescendo, rubato, it's almost a bit like it's all music is is there. Uh, and that commemorative piece written, I believe, on the eve of, of his first wife's death. Uh, and there's so much emotion in it. Um, it's almost like Spanish music. Um, it's got a, I think the, 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 the title is Bach's in, in, in um, I think that's what, what the word means uh, it means pretty doesn't it in, in the Basque language apparently Chacon mm. or Chacona um, oh, it's beautiful heartfelt piece with a gorgeous middle section I mean six minutes or eight minutes depending on how fast or slow you play <laughs> um, uh, in the minor key and then it goes to the major and the most wonderful uh, melody in 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 the middle, and um, I poured heart and soul into that when I played it. Now I know we're coming up on an hour, and I have to ask you something, or my father oh. will kill me, because um, <laughs> it's something that he and I have gotten into arguments over the years about. Um, sure. On Foxtrot, are Horizon and Suppers ready? Part like were they were they written together? Uh, he seems to think that Horizons is part of Supper's Ready, but just the guitar part isolated. Well, actually, no, they're not written together. Um, what happened was um, um, I recorded that separately, and at some point, um, somebody, not me, it may have been uh, um, John Burns, suggested that... Um, it be played back to back with the beginning of of Supper's Ready, um, you know, without a gap. So it seems as if it's it's part of the same tune, but it's separately titled, um, and um, you know that would be difficult because you know it's a six string steel, and then it's uh, three twelve strings all playing the same part when we first kick off. So um, um, it's not actually the same part. No. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I've been telling yeah, I, him this for years. I, I can understand because of the classical feeling that accompanies both of them. So I think there is. I, I think that you know the the, the pieces are, are are sympathetic to each other, um, but um, from my point of view, it's 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 a happy accident that they they. Um, what's the word? 
can't think of the right word. Um, they work together, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, the one thing uh, I have to ask you, because we ask... <laughs> I can't believe, I never thought this interview would happen, but we ask everybody at the end of each podcast uh, the same question, and normally we go through this thing about how sort of separates artists, sort of the the wheat from the chaff, blah, 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 and I ask them, uh, (laughs) uh, which era of Genesis do you prefer, the Peter Gabriel-led one or the Phil Collins? Um, Well, I think that both eras have got something to offer. Um, I think that um, they were both great front men with uh, with the band, and um, I'm proud of, of much of the music that I did with with Peter, and also you know the music with Phil. Um, I think that um, I think that both eras, uh, you know, you've got two more studio albums with with Phil, for instance, Trick mm-hmm. of the Tail and Wind of Wuthering, and I think they both both those albums have got something. Uh, unique to offer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it, it may not have been the 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 last word in arrangements, and um, you know, something like Los Endos, for instance, um, is an ever evolving piece because you know I've played it live quite a lot. I've retired it for the past couple of years, but um, um, it involves many other melodies and bits and things that have been grafted onto it. You know, as, as a, almost like. It, it, it's a ready-made medley. Um, it's 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 a springboard, um, and uh, I've used you know bits of other things, but normally come back to the original arrangement at the end or something like. But I've got my own take on it, and mm-hmm. of course, of course, of course, I do it the best. Me <laughs> 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 yeah, and my band do it proper like. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much, Steve, for talking to us. Thank you. This has been great. Yeah, I'm glad you've enjoyed it. And uh, and, uh, and me too. Thank you very much. <laughs> All the best. Yes, you as well. Thank you again. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Goodbye. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
dark, thundering hooves tearing out of the air. Club of night, always on the move. No one can steal our freedom. We'll fly an eagle's wing out of the body and into the dream. Of the body and into the dream. 